when you take a recipe and you look through it, there's so many little clues to how people lived and how people cooked. I mean, what I find with the earlier recipes, they really are just almost, they're almost poems in a way. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Paul Couchman. Paul is a food history expert who's really hands-on with his history. He runs online history food courses um, and he's also um, a, uh, oh is it a volunteer, Paul? Is that the right word? Yeah. For the, yeah. the Regency Townhouse, um, which is a fantastic building in uh, Brighton and I'm really excited and also hungry already just thinking about food so so hi Paul how are you? I'm really well I'm really well and look, it's, I mean it's a pleasure to talk about history and food together with you today I love it. Thank you so can you tell me how did you get involved in um, food history and can you can you tell me a bit about the kitchen that you discovered as well because yeah. I think everyone would love to hear about that. Well those those sort of things came together really because um, about five or six years ago I was helping as a volunteer um, do up this space, this kitchen. Um, and when we finished it, well, uh, sorry, and to, to say, I mean, I learned plastering and I did a bit of woodwork and all those sort of things, a whole team of people. And we put this wonderful 1830s kitchen back together again. And there was no real purpose for it afterwards. And so people didn't really know what they were gonna do with it. And so I decided, well, you've got a, it's an old kitchen, you've got to cook in it, that's amazing. <laughs> So I, I started cooking in it and I, the first thing I did was mince pies um, um, from an old recipe and just at that moment when you're standing there in that old kitchen creating something, an old recipe, you know, and bringing back a space to life again where you're cooking, it, there's something so magical about that and I was standing there, you know, in the space where a, a servant probably stood making the same thing as they probably did probably 200 years before me you know yeah I can like, totally understand yeah it's like you know it's like time travel but really 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 time travel and I was getting this like chills you know when I was doing it and I said oh this is it and so since then we've just done loads of it and other people have joined in and stuff as well but that's oh brilliant where, that's when my love for it started so it was it was purely that space that space sort of drove me to to find out more okay so I know I know you call the 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 um the kitchen in Brighton that you restored as part of the Regency townhouse. Yeah. Can you explain what what exactly is the Regency period? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got a very broad <laughs> view of it because you can get very narrow and just concentrate on the, on the, the section when um, uh, Prince, well, sorry, it's um, a, a king, uh, when the Prince Regent was the Prince yeah. Regent, which is basically what's um, 1782, I've got my dates, 1812, oh, yeah. to, it's roughly that, isn't it? It's a very short period. What we do is, is call the Regency period um, in a sort of stylistic period. Okay. And that really goes right through. I think we talked before about William IV, the king that everyone forgets. Um, <laughs> so we're actually in William IV period, um, which is sort of the 18, 18, late 1820s, I think 1829 to 1837, just before <laughs> So it's that in-between period. But we categorise the whole thing as, as Regency because basically Regency styles, especially in architecture and cooking, they carried on right through that period, you know. So you start, they start from about 1780, but really, especially in Brighton, really go on to about 1850. So buildings are still built in that Regency period. And it's my favourite. It's my favourite yeah. style. It's beautiful, big sash windows. And, Isn't yeah. that amazing? Yeah. 
yeah it is lovely um but what what were kitchens like during that yeah. period and what what kind of equipment did they have and tell me a bit can you tell me a bit about that yeah so we've got a very um upmarket kitchen the houses were really meant for rich people um and so we've got or would have had a great big range um which would have been um cooking you know continually throughout the day so that place would have been really hot and because of that you've got these wonderful skylights above the above the kitchen it's a very tall space and you've got these skylights to let all the air out and bring the ventilation in and also light because of course at that period um light was very expensive oil lights candles all very expensive and so you made the most of daylight so it's got a beautiful sort of top lighting which is really you know people love that now um yeah. and it's all tiled and we've got like sculleries and larders where people you know sculleries where you do the washing up and uh wet and dry larder where you keep the where you keep the food okay. um and also i mean at the end of the uh, of the um space and luckily we've still got it we've got a beautiful um dresser so it's it's vast i mean it really is massive um and that's where they kept you know the, all the crockery and stuff you keep that on that on very high shelves and it's um it's all been restored it looks beautiful yeah i know i've seen it on instagram it is beautiful yeah um, make sure that the account is tagged in the video because it is yeah, a really got beautiful restoration yeah. yeah it's um what um how did they kind of keep the food cool you know, you mentioned about um, uh, uh, storage there. What kind of yeah. techniques did they use to try and make the food last as long as possible? So, I mean, they, they would often shop quite a lot because the market, luckily for us, is very close by. So, unlike, you know, a lot of those country houses, they could just pop out and get a few things. Um, but they have got like, what do they call them? Wet larders. So it's, you probably know from your grand. I mean, my grand had one as well. You've got those indoor larders. Uh, they've got them on a larger scale and what you've got is the back doors would have opened onto these larders so that space could be relatively um, cool compared to the kitchen which is boiling hot yeah um and it's got to, uh, what we've got um we've got a lovely one um they call it a meat safe and it's got uh, uh, grills wired grills in front of it to let the ventilation through but to keep all the flies and maybe very keen rats you know who wanted to climb up to keep all of those out so that's sort of we, yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of what people do for fridges then. It's yeah. funny, isn't it? Because my I was talking to my my nan. So my nan's in my in her eighties. Um, so obviously my great grandparents were born kind of turn of the century, nineteen hundred, and I was asking her about um, you know, technology and 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 in the kitchen and domestic technology really, and how it, you know how it influenced her you know, how things changed throughout her lifetime. But she was saying, you know, her mum never had a fridge. Her mum didn't have a fridge for, for years and years and years until probably like the 50s or 60s. Exactly. Um, and she was saying they used to have a marble. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a marble um, shelf that would keep yeah. everything everything cool, you know, which is, um, yeah, you, I find it hard to imagine. I'm like, my fridge is always ram pack with three you know with three know. kids i'm kind yeah. of constantly i try and bulk buy and I've, I've got chest freezer in my garage and i love it it's like one of the best christmas presents i've ever had and i quite often think like how would i have coped you know without although they did have ice houses didn't they yeah i mean again that's really for the rich as well and again these great big pits where they would buy great big chunks of ice they drop them in the winter and they'd keep cool underneath the ground basically for a long long period and they could just chip beats off because um, especially ice cream is very, um, very upmarket, very prestigious, you know, to have that on your table. And so, yeah, yeah so you needed the ice, you needed the ice to make the ice cream. Yeah, I, I'm guessing ice cream would have cost a fortune because you'd have the sugar as well, which is expensive. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, also the labor. I mean, yeah. it takes ages. Um, 
there is on the repair shop they actually um it's a tv program on on bbc and they actually had one of those old ice churns that they made ice cream they they restored it for this guy um, and basically what i mean what it is i don't know if you've seen them they're like buckets and they've yeah. got an internal buckets and then you put the ice around uh, on the outside um and they, you should put a bit of salt in as well to uh, mm. keep it even colder and then you turn it so you've got that, you know, how we, how we make ice cream now, sort of custard, basically, with eggs and, and milk. Um, and you put that in the, in the middle section, then you turn, turn, turn. But obviously that takes ages, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really expensive. Yeah. So obviously not everybody had a kitchen. In fact, I'm guessing, you know, probably the vast majority, especially in cities, didn't have um, kitchens. So what? What would they have done? Would they have shared kitchens? Would they have done street food? How did they survive? Yeah, a, mi a mixture of both, basically. Most people had access to some sort of boiling water because um, they often had to do their own laundry and stuff. So most people had a copper. And so most people, I mean, a good proportion of the population, that's the way they ate. So things like, and I love this, puddings, you know, all sorts of puddings, meat puddings, uh, sweet puddings. These could have been cooked in their copper with the um, with the laundry. You know, you just take the laundry out afterwards. And you had basically, I don't know if you've seen them, but they are puddings that are bound up in in a cloth, and then they're dunked into the water. Um, and what you can do is have lots and lots of different puddings all going at the same time. Um, so people lived on puddings, and if they didn't, um, if they wanted something roasted or baked, um, they would go to the um, oven in the you know they, the uh, the baker would have an oven that people could use. And there's these lovely stories about people, um, especially men, for roast dinners, all taking the roast down to the baker. Um, and they would, um, they would take it and they'd stay while it was being baked in the oven. So it was quite, you know, all these men together. Um, and then they would come triumphant back to the, um, to the wives and the families with the roast, which they, you know, <laughs> hardly, only really just taken to the baker, they hadn't really done anything. But they would obviously get all the praise for that. And it was a way of male bonding as well, you know, that they, they, all the men got together and chatted together while the women were at home. Um, you can just imagine that. <laughs> yeah, you can just imagine that, can't you? Yeah, no, I've got, I've got to take that joint to the baker. I'll, you know, well, it does take a few hours. Sorry about that, you know, but I, you know, I'm working hard. <laughs> and I think often they would have alcohol as well to keep yeah. them, you know. Yeah, presumably they paid for the oven, presumably they paid like a couple of pence or something to use the exactly. oven, yeah. yeah. And it was a great way for the baker, especially on a Sunday, if you think about the way um, bread is baked, the, the oven would have a rest period, and so that rest period would be used by, um, by renting out the oven space to the people in the village or the town. I love it. Um, yeah. And the other thing you mentioned was street food. Street food was, you know, there was just so much of it. Even, I mean, we've got lots of street food now. In a way, we've got a resurgence, or we did have before the pandemic came along. We had a resurgence of all that wonderful food you can get on the streets, especially in London. You know, you can get everything, can't you? And so yeah. they really, I mean, fish and chips, you know, well, that came along. Um, people just ate a lot from the street if you wanted a good hot meal. And it was cheap. And they had, very, you know, masses of different sorts of, you know, jelly deals, or, you know, all those sort of, um, yeah, peas pudding, yeah, everything you could buy. I mean, it was all all for sale on the streets. My granddad loves jelly deals, and yeah. I was really brave and tried one once, which it was often like a dodgy vendor in Portsmouth, so it probably wasn't like <laughs> like particularly brilliant. But it, he really enjoyed them, and I, I couldn't stomach it at all. So at one mouth, it was like, oh no. <laughs> It's a good shop. There's yeah. a few shops in East London, aren't there? So, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. He he grew up in London, so he's a Londoner. So, right. and, but yeah, I love I love that about food though. You can tell where yeah. somebody's from 
yeah. sometimes by some of the things that they ate and yeah. um you know having lived by the sea quite a lot that, that makes a massive difference as to what kind of food's available um but talking talking about food history it's quite nice to sort of wax lyrical about the the different dishes things but why is it actually important like why why do we need to know or why would we want to know about what people ate what can it tell us about the past um, there's so many different things it can tell i mean even when you take a recipe and you look through it there's so many little clues to how people lived and how people cooked i mean what i find with the earlier recipes they really are just almost they're almost poems in a way there's just a few words um i'm, I'm just going to grab one actually so i just show read you out a, a section and get you yeah a, yeah that'd be great get you an, an idea so this is um this is a recipe for plain cake it says a plain cake and it's got mrs swain we don't, i don't know who mrs swain is yet but i'm gonna find out um <laughs> Take two pounds of fine flour, which make into dough, melt six ounces of butter and pour over it. Beat two eggs, six ounces of sugar and a little pounded cinnamon and mace, a few currants and raisins stoned. Mix all these ingredients together, put in a tin previously buttered and bake in a moderate oven. It is very good. It is very good, it says here. Yeah, it is very good. And, <laughs> this I mean, is my it. recipe. It's very good. I won't tell you how to make the dough. You're just going to make no, a dough. No, no. So, uh, like I said, assume knowledge. You know, make, yeah. Do you know what dough is? Do you know what temperature your oven is? Do you know how long you have to bake it for? All of that information is just not kept in there. I guess oven temperature would have been difficult, though, because how would you... I guess, you know, ovens would have... It wouldn't have been electronic, so it would have um, been difficult to get. Oh, an exact temperature yeah no please do i'm guessing so please do um and there's also back to um i was talking about bridgerton as well bridgerton there's a lovely scene where they all go downstairs and, and um get some warm milk and they have to work out how to turn the oven on yeah. <laughs> so i think it's amazing basically the ovens are really hard you've got to stoke them up it takes you know a good half maybe three quarters of an hour to get it all going you know like like you're saying a fire up once you've got it going um the temperature uh, will drop and what they tended to do was um, use the oven according to what temperature it was at. So you couldn't right. just turn it down like we do. So yeah. when it's hot, you put the things that need to be um, baked hot and you have all your pies and your biscuits all lined up to ready to go in at certain times or certain temperatures. It's all very clever and they work it all out. I, it, it, it amazes me how they did that with um, bread and cakes because I've done it before where I've, I've turned the oven up too high, put the cakes yeah. in and thought, oh, it's too high and turned it down. And of course, my cakes sunk immediately and I was like, oh, no. Um, and same with bread, you know, if you don't have the right temperature and, you know, bread's fussy sometimes. So yeah. it amazes me how they manage that. I, I'm guessing they must have had um, different ways of judging it. Oh, trial and error as well. But yeah, okay. I mean, you know, you learn, you learn how to use the oven. And those ovens are apparently brilliant. They're big, basically big tin boxes with the heat goes all around them. That's how okay. ranges work. So you've got a fire which sort of circulates, very clever, circulates hot air all around this, this box in the middle that's the oven. Okay. Very similar in a way to, um, oh, my, my thing's gone. Um, very similar in a way to, um, <laughs> very similar in a way to the um, ovens work now. You know, it's, it's the same principle, but completely, yeah, completely, um, what's the word? Not not random, but it's, it it takes a bit of knowledge to use it. Yeah, yeah, I bet I bet there's a real knack to it. So, do you have any favourite recipes, and if so, why? Yeah, yeah, and this is my my utmost favourite is a fruitcake recipe, which um, is absolutely delicious, and which I make for when we when we could, still could. I used to make it in the tea room, 
and people adored it. It was a lovely fruitcake with lots of, you know, it's got orange um, uh, citrus in it, orange zest, raisins, currants, you know, it's got brandy, mace, all these lovely little Christmassy flavors. And it, it's just a lovely fruitcake and it also lasts quite well. So that's my favorite one. And I just saw it, it's in there. It's online as well, so please, um, I, I beg, I, you know, you must, you must try it, you must try it, because it is really the, one of the nicest food cakes. Um, and it's got pedigree, you know, it's been, you know, it's in a book from the 1830s. And it's still, and it's still delicious. Yeah, they knew what they were doing with their, uh, with their cakes. What, what sort of access did they have to, um, to spices and, and herbs? I'm, I'm guessing by 1830s it was, you know, kind of similar to what we have now, really, to a certain degree. Yeah, it's so, really it depended on how much money you have. Yeah. You get it, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was obtainable for middle-class people by then. You know, it wasn't just, you know, in the medieval period, it's basically court food. It's, it's the royal people that were able to access spices. But it, it's built as right down. So people have access to those sort of things, you know, even the working classes to a certain extent, especially, you know, um, we've got this tendency, uh, you know, uh, Christmas and, and those sort of um, feast days, we, we, um, we overdose in spices, don't we? And that's yeah. what the working class would have done. So that, that's when they, for the holidays and the feast days and for fairs, you know, with gingerbread and stuff, that's when you would taste the spices for those special occasions. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't have it on a daily basis. I've read quite a few newspaper articles where um, somebody wealthy in the area has um, paid for everybody in the village or all the, the, the poorer people or all the boys at school in a city for example to go and have a Christmas meal um, uh, so they'd all turn up and I, that, that seems to be quite common I've, I've come across that quite a lot going through the newspapers and I, I love that idea that they'd once a year treat 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 the minions to the to this yeah. big luxury meal you know um, which I'm sure they really enjoyed because they just wouldn't have had access to to the amount of meat and things like that as well um, but I'm, I'm guessing people grew their own herbs like they do now, you know, herbs that grew. I think because I, I think people tend to think, well, you could fall into a trap of thinking the food was quite bland. But actually, there's no reason why you couldn't have grown bay leaves and rosemary. Depends, and depends where you were, though. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're poor in the city, I mean, no chance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know when allotments came in. Um, much later, later much yeah, later, later. I'm guessing. But I'm. Um, well, what's, what's quite sad about all of this is that, um, especially towards the beginning, 1820s, 1830s, people lived mainly, um, you know, in the countryside, you know, and the cities would, you know, it was, it was different. And that changes dramatically through that period. So you, from the 1820s onwards, things just changed completely until, you know, until about the 1860s, when most people are living in cities. Um, and people's fortunes in food and stuff changed completely. So you get, you're actually quite well fed in the beginning, but the poor really were you know, really badly fed by the by the late 1880s, 1890s. Well, you know all the stories, you know, it's just, it's just hideous. The urban poor is, yeah, it's awful, yeah. I, I think you see that right up until the Second World War to a certain degree. I mean, I've yeah. read about people in the city um, kind of all going in and, and, and joining forces to buy a pig. Um, so that they could then kill the pig and have the, have the bacon during World War II when everything was rationed because yeah. they didn't have access to the, the food that the people in the countryside had yeah. um, freely growing around them um, and, and were therefore suffering the consequences of rationing a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, it is, that urbanisation, I think, had a massive, massive effect. So, yeah. so we've talked a little bit about cookbooks. Who, who was writing these cookbooks? Oh, 
Well, from the 18th century onwards, so you've got the um, 1700s, you've got lots of women suddenly coming and writing cookbooks. So there's a few, um, my favorite, I've got them all around here, but basically um, Hannah Glass is one of the first ones, about 1747. She's really influential and that book got published more and more. Um, a lot of Hannah Glass and probably everyone knows about Eli um, Mrs. Beaton. Yeah. Um, a lot of um, Mrs. Beaton is actually Hannah Glass. Because. <laughs> <laughs> She just reused it. I mean, that's what happens with recipes, especially. Um, and Mrs. Beaton was more of a, a recipe collector than a recipe developer. And so she's more of a journalist. She's very young as well. So she didn't really have the, you know, the kitchen experience that a lot of the other cooks did. There's another few called, um, there's a, um, Elizabeth Rundle. Um, there's Eliza Acton as well, who's really important. Have I got my copy? Yeah, it's back there. I've got a wonderful copy of Eliza Acton. She's, she's writing about the 1840s. Um, also much better than Mr. Peter. So Hannah Glass, <laughs> Eliza Acton, those are the two I really recommend. Um, and the recipes are great and you can cook them and they really work, you know, even now. And it, who were they? Were they just quite middle class, wealthy ladies that, that, that wanted to share their knowledge? Yeah, I mean, usually they, they I think most of them work, work in some sort of way as housekeepers, you know, and then work their way up to actually producing books. You know, because okay. obviously that earns more money. Um, yeah, Hannah Glass is very interesting because um, I love this fact about her. Her book, when it first came out, was by subscription only, and it was available in a china shop. So you went into your china shop, you write down your name, and once they had enough money and, and enough names, they published the book. That's genius. Yes, yeah, lovely way of doing it, isn't it? Book, yeah. I think Dickens had, there was some sort of subscription model to Dickens as well, wasn't there? Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's such a good marketing ploy as well to have it in the yeah. in the china shop you know I'd, I think I think when you're running a small business like like we do you you kind of I was just thinking about Mrs Beaton there you spend yeah. a, long, a lot of time putting content um out into the world and then you look at somebody like Mrs Beaton that, that's exactly what she was doing she was repurposing content as oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, doing but, marketing yeah she was um yeah she had a background in journalism didn't she and her husband mm. was helped it was all it's a fascinating story yeah yeah I mean, yeah. a very shrewd businesswoman, basically, and that's what it was. And of course, she died, and the name just carried on as a sort of brand right through to about the 1920s, I believe. Yeah, I'm but, sure she was only about 28 when she died. She was really right. young, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah really young. So, if they were writing the cookbooks, who who was reading them, and what does that tell us about, um, you know, the role of a housekeeper and their literacy? Yeah. So, what you find is the middle classes need these books because they have to keep up. Um, you know. To have good status and to, to have any sort of influence you need to have, hold good dinner parties um okay. and if you don't have all the knowledge yourself or, or you can't afford to have the best servants you need some sort of publication that will help to guide you and so that's what a lot of these books were doing they were helping out the middle classes with <laughs> with their domestic you know um difficulties um and you see in this period as well that people are desperate for the servants there's a real fight to get the good servants you know, and, and you hear about rivalries between houses. If you've got a good housekeeper, she might be taken away from you, or a good cook, you know, they, they, they might be like whisked away by one of your neighbors. <laughs> with you know, you're better off with a bit more money. Yeah. Oh, so, what, so, what sort of things did a housekeeper do? What do you know? Oh, yeah. Tell yeah. me a bit about the role. Yeah, yeah. So, the house, if you're in a very rich house, you have two people. So, you have the cook and the housekeeper, or you have the butler as well, of course. But the housekeeper's mainly surprised in, um, She's in control of all the stores. So her rooms are usually in the Regency Town, anyway, the room is at the front of the building. 
Um, so you can see people coming in and out. And she has lots of cupboards for storage, things like soap, um, well, anything really, you know, serviettes, tablecloths, um, candlesticks, uh, tea, you know, maybe some of the more expensive spices. They're all kept in, in, that, in that room. And the cook and other servants would have to ask for the, um, for the, for the things they need. And then the housekeeper would keep a note of all that, the coming, you know, the outgoings and everything. So she'd have to be quite numerate. Um, and it's also a role of responsibility. You've got the, um, yeah, you're looking after your employee, employer's money. Yeah. You know? So it's, 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 it's a, and often what, what we um, have found as well is that the housekeepers were sometimes um, um, relatives. They had sometimes been made and aunts that were employed. Um, they were sort of taken in and given work. Um, <laughs> imagine. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, imagine the difficulties that would have, uh, uh, you know, employing your own family. It's not easy, is it? No, it makes you wonder how many housekeepers that you like you because you wouldn't want to annoy your housekeeper, <laughs> would you? You know, because you suddenly little tiny things would go missing where you and you would never know. You'd be too yeah. busy, you know, having teas and dinners to uh, to notice. <laughs> the housekeeper in the town, she's got a lovely room at the front, and we've actually created a fictional character that, um, oh, you know, don't you? called Mrs. Finnegan, who, um, who's on Twitter and um, who um, delivers housekeeping advice um, all, over the, um, all over the internet, all over Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. No, I it's love it. It's such a clever yeah. idea. Um, really brings history to life, things like that, I think. Yeah, that was the idea, you know, just get yeah. these voices, because um, probably a theme of what we're chatting about is you've got these voices that are of, of, of people that I tend not to leave much trace of them. Mm. So when I look at a recipe, you know, even the, the recipes in these sort of books, you know, and like I said, it's all, well, I probably haven't said it, it's all handwritten, but yeah. you have to have traces of these people that, you know, of these ordinary people, you know, ordinary cooks, ordinary housekeepers, um, and the traces of their lives are in these recipes, and that's the only thing that's really left. And I think that's so beautiful, isn't it? You know. I think so. I think um, a lot of the genealogy community talk about recipe books that they've had um, passed on to them, and I'm, I'm I'm always totally envious. I mean, my mum tried, you know, my mum tried to make tiramisu, and she got mozzarella and mascarpone confused. So it was like half tiramisu, half pizza, and so there, there's no way any recipes oh. are going to pass down generations down my line. That's for sure. But yeah, I know it's it's a really um, you know kind of evocative and and um kind of emotional thing to to pass along what you've been cooking and what you've done in your day to day i've got another example here actually so i'm holding up um it's a book from the 1890s but what's lovely about this one and i was given this like people just give me books which is lovely it's got all these clippings from the 1930s from um old recipes and this is an old housekeeper there worked in Wales. Oh okay these... so it's like little newspaper clippings and, yeah. and bits that they found and yeah like a scrapbook almost. Yeah so what I'm holding up is a stew, stews for cold days by Elizabeth Craig. Oh <laughs> everyone needs stews for cold days that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's lovely, brilliant. So have you seen any recipes that you you'd like to make and can't because ingredients have changed or text changed? Yeah because you see a lot of things with like I don't know I think people tend to share the more um weird recipes or what seems weird to us like you know pigs trotters and things that we don't tend to eat so much of nowadays um, oh I, I, have a, I can get into big rants about that um no do I, go on tell, tell us what's your thoughts just, well just um 
it's just what what the TV tends to concentrate on is the um, is the bizarre and the disgusting, you know. And so you've got this. I think a lot of people have an idea that historic food was really really not very nice, and that food now is much better. But if you think of some of the processed food that we eat now and some of the disgusting things that I see in the shops, um, they've relied very, very, um, very much on seasonal food. Um, also that no satel eating was very much there. So you use the whole animal. So, you know, you do get um, things done with, um, I know, tripe and, you know, stuff like that, brains. And, but actually a lot of that is, is very, it's really delicious. Um, yeah, and it's great for gravy as well. I mean, oh, that's, no. you know, who at Christmas doesn't shove the, the giblets in their gravy to well, it's best bit, isn't it? yeah 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 of course of course um and what you find in all these old recipe books is um a sort of they're very um passionate about using everything and using everything in the right way and and the books just read like you know as almost like what we should be doing now in the future i think you know to, to think more carefully about what we're eating and to and, and to start cooking properly, you know, because that's how they did it. So less of the um, less of the meal kits, you know, more just going back to um, cooking simple food that's really tasty. Yeah. And that's yeah. what a lot of stock food is. It's tasty food cooked well and done simply. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So is there anything, though, that you've seen and gone, I really wish I could cook that, but I don't know how I'd get hold of the ingredients? I've always wanted to use there's something called Isling glass, which they use to make jellies. And it's the floating sack of a cod fish, I think it is, which is almost impossible to get now. So I'd love to, this is really nerdy. Uh, I'd love <laughs> to try that. And the thing I don't want to try, which I, it's the one thing in the book that I just couldn't stomach, is sparrow dumplings. What's that? Well, you take a whole sparrow, you cover it in pastry, and then you. Um, you boil it. Oh, <laughs> I'm not. Then, I wonder whether it'd be like gamey. Yeah, yeah. I would, uh, they've got them. I think it's Autolans, isn't it? In France, they eat them whole, and they crunch okay. through the bones. And so it's that idea. So you've got this, this tiny little bird that you just because the bones are so soft, they just like crunch through the whole thing. I just could. Could you do that? And it's her. no, no. Yeah. Did did France have quite a big influence on our food at all, yeah, or yeah, the yeah. food of the rich? Because I mean, it does now. We tend to look at French food as kind of the creme de la creme don't we I suppose it's like anything because I, I study history of art and what you find is that um, art follows money or, or money follows art well, yeah whichever way so the countries that are wealthy have the best cuisines and originally that was Italy then it moved to France then it moved to England so you, and, and even Holland back in the, its time had a period as well when the food was brilliant and so all this all this food all this money moves around so they all influence each other and at one point especially yeah probably about the 18 beginning of the, of the 19th century anyway, French food was very um, in vogue. And you've got people like Carême, who's, um, he was the cook to, well, for, for a few years, cook to the Prince Regent. Um, and he cooked amazing things. And everybody wanted then after that a French cook. And so, you know, people would pay to have these French cooks just come in maybe for an evening, you know, much to the annoyance probably of the uh, of the uh, female cook, who <laughs> would have just be pushed to one side for an evening while this um, this this male cook came in and took over. And male cooks would have been paid double uh, the the price of a female cook, you know. So they were expensive um, and very much wanted. You know, you wanted a male cook. You know, oh, really? They were in vogue. <laughs> like either you wanted, yeah, you so you wanted uh, either um, uh, French cook. Or French male cook, you know, French male cook is the top, you know, or French cook, and then you go down to the female cooks, yeah. 
Yeah. So would they have been trying things like escargot and is that the kind of things that France might have brought over or that's obviously a complete stereotype. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm a terrible cook, so I don't know very much about food at all. So. But the things I've tried, I've not tried that, the things I've tried, and these are lovely, they are something called a fanchonette, fanchonette. Um, and what you have in a fanchonette is, and this is very French, you've got this um, a puff pastry layer um, underneath, uh, on top of that is a sort of layer of custard. And they used to flavour all sorts of things like raisins and rum, maybe chocolate. Then on top of that, you've got a meringue layer and then you bake it all in different stages in the oven. You've got this lovely sort of delicacy that you eat. Um, and this was served to the Prince Regents by Karem as one of the dishes. And I've made them and they're, and they're absolutely delicious. So fan fanchonettes, they're called. And that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got this really real vogue for French desserts. You know, they really love that. And also the French sauces. You've got, you know, all those different sauces that they have. That's very, very much in, in trend at this point as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I meant to ask earlier as well when you were talking about puddings. What yeah. the the um, pastry, the whatever, whatever it is that's encrusting the food inside, especially if it was meat. What what was that made out of? Was that suet like it is nowadays? Or yeah, there's all different ones, but yeah, suet, suet is mainly. But they also have these like they either have like really thick puddings, a bit like uh, Christmas pudding now. You know, quite sturdy. Yeah, it's very light puddings as well, which are almost liquid. Okay. It's something called a hasty pudding, which is quite nice. And, and the cloth really contains it. So it almost goes in liquid. And when it boils, it will, uh, you know, when it seems and boils, it will slightly solidify. But you get the sort of quivering pudding as well. It's delicious. You know, ah. a bit like a, a really set custard. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you think of the, um, what they also did then, instead of putting them in cloths, if you're very posh, you put them in pastry. And that's actually the origins of something like baked hot tart. Oh, so okay. Batter, you know, egg batter with almonds and um, you've added the jam as well. And that's put, put into a pastry case and then baked in the oven. You see, there's quivering, you know, there's cheesecakes as well. That's where all that originates from as well. Okay. It's, I love cheesecakes. Cheesecake yeah. <laughs> so originally done in sort of um, pudding cloths, eventually done in pastry. Okay. And, and what about... Um savory puddings because I, I not everybody watching especially uh, perhaps if you're in america might not be quite so familiar with the, the the idea of savory puddings or puddings being a savory dish and not just a, a dessert yeah things like bacon roly-poly have you had that i love that no i've never had bacon roly-poly what's bacon roly-poly <laughs> oh it's a roly-poly without you know usually a roly-poly is um basically it's syrup pastry that's been rolled up around the filling um in this case it's sort of bacon mix but you can also do it with jam yeah yeah the usual one so it's the same yeah. idea you've got a sort of swiss roll that's been um what they used to do is i mean i've got a shirt here they would have just taken off the um the shirt um and used that to wrap the pudding in so that's why they're that shape so, oh yeah. really okay so uh, paul's just holding up his um his arm for anyone who's listening on the podcast version and you've got a a very kind of well, is it a Regency shirt? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's got a Regency shirt on with lovely sort of billowing sleeves. Um, so they would have taken that off and wrapped yeah. your pudding on it and then <laughs> then washed it and stuck it back on the next day, I'm guessing. Well, no, you, you, old, you old church. That's how you old church. Okay, I thought you yeah, meant yeah. like literally as they were cooking, they would have, ripped, <laughs> you know, like they had like, you know, removable sleeves for a second there. So you could well, just, you know, cook yeah, in times of need. But that's why the, the, you got that shape, you know, that shape of the roly-poly, that's because it's a shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
so um would um would poorer people that were kind of relying on um street food would they have had access to sweet you know to some sort of dessert type foods um or just fruit or yeah or fruit how accessible would fruit have been um it is but I, um yeah no I'm, I'm not i'm not quite sure because i haven't studied so much about the working class mm. I, I know i know they used to sell it and because you, you've got these there's a book here about the cries of london have you yeah you henry Mayhew. yeah yeah, yeah it's got, brilliant there's a book there and you can see all these people cherries so, i mean that that stuff does come in especially into the city so yeah i don't know how expensive and how how affordable it was for a lot of the working poor there i mean you know yeah i mean you had orange well you had orange sellers back in charles yeah. the was it Charles first or Charles second? I can't can't think of um oh Nell Nell Gwynn is who yeah, I'm thinking exactly. of, and I can't yeah. think which Charles she's uh, she's the mistress of. But yeah, yeah, they used to sell them in the Theatre Royal in Jewelry Lane outside. That's right, yeah, yeah in baskets. Yeah, but yeah, you know, the expensive um, um snacks for the for the rich at that point. Yeah, yeah, I, I I it's probably um easy to underestimate just how many jobs um relied on food and the selling of food as well I've, I've got some ancestors that were basket makers basket weavers um in Covent Garden and obviously that's probably you know that's why they were living on Covent Garden they would have been making the baskets that all the food and all the goods that were sold there would have been um distributed and sold in so yeah, it kind of has group. this big knock-on impact onto all these different job roles yeah well you can see baskets were used for everything they were even used in building uh, you know when they um they had baskets for bricks and stuff like that so yeah I think we use you know Anything we contain now um, in, you know, plastic or buckets or stuff, you'd have the basket for it. So baskets are incredibly important. Yeah. 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 It's, it's easy to forget. I think just anytime you look at anything plastic, remember that wouldn't have yeah. been there. They would have had to have had a different solution. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Just before we go, I just I'll just ask you one last question, because I know that you um, you do these um, cooking courses. Uh, how are you how are you doing them at the moment with the pandemic? Um, are they online? Yeah, so normally I do them in the kitchen. So we get about eight people in the kitchen and we actually stand in that old kitchen making the old recipes. You know, so I, when I was talking in the, in the beginning, I was talking about how we, um, you know, how, how magical it is to be in that kitchen. Well, I, I try and get other people to experience that too. Um, so online, it's a bit tricky, but I, I, <laughs> I've managed to do it. So I do it from my own kitchen. Um, and I get people now from all over the world to so South Africa. I had Australia, France, and last time. And I do like Christmas pudding uh, courses I did. Um, I've got hot cross bun course coming up. There will be a pie course later as well, which I want to do. So, oh, that's brilliant. And they're all historic yeah. recipes. Yeah, so historic recipes. You can recipe. actually give it a yeah. try themselves. Yeah. So what I do is I take historic recipes, slightly adapt it, and then um, send it out to people. What's lovely is these recipes then get another life, you know, they, they start getting made somewhere else. So, um, you know, they were languishing in this old book and now um, I'm sort of sending them out to the world to, to lead, a, lead a fulfilled life somewhere else for other people. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Do you find yeah. that people adapt them themselves as well? And, oh, yeah. And pass them on, you know. Perfectly fine, yeah. It doesn't matter, does it? But I love that idea of, of recipes carrying on. You know, so many of these old recipes get lost or forgotten, and, and to give them another life, I think it's really wonderful. Yeah. No, I do too. So, where, where, if anyone's interested, well, I will put it in the notes as well. But where can they, where can they come and find you? So the best place is my own website. It's www.paulcouchman.co.uk. 
and also I'm on Twitter as the Regency Cook. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook as, as the Regency Cook. And yeah, come and join me because, especially on Twitter, we just chat about food all the time. What, what, what could be nicer? <laughs> yeah, I, I love reading the recipes that you share and, um, you know, um, all the bits. And I, I love see, on, on Instagram, I love seeing the, the restoration of the Regency Townhouse as well, yeah. which yeah. is in Brighton and is one of the top of my list to come and visit after oh, the uh, after the pandemic yeah. when we when we're allowed to go out in person again and i i can't wait to see it <laughs> you'd love it honestly you would <laughs> i'm absolutely sure i would oh paul it's been a real pleasure talking to you i could talk all day but i know you have another meeting to go to so i will um i will let you off the hook <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for joining me today my absolute pleasure it's been great fun chatting with you today thank you <laughs> If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.